plays as an organization, I think it would be a mistake to overlook the real contribution of one of the most wonderful organizations in the world, AA. I think today it would be well for you to learn a little bit more about what uh, Alcoholics Anonymous does. And we have asked two speakers to come and enlighten us. Now, the first will be treated by Mr. Presnall, who spoke to us this morning. And uh, I've heard him given, I've heard him give a similar lecture to this other times, and it's just full of human interest and appeal. And uh, I just hope that he will give something of the same in talking about the family and the wife of the alcoholic. Mr. Presnell. Thank you again, Dr. DeMars. I hope this thing doesn't start talking back to me again. They say it's bad enough when you start talking to yourself, but when you start answering yourself, that's worse. <clears throat> I don't know what you do when you talk into a microphone and it starts singing back to you. <clears throat> Reminds me of the little boy who was a friend, uh, the child of a friend of ours. When he was about four years old, he was full of spice and vigor, vinegar, and they took him to church one Sunday morning. And he was uh, feeling quite adult, so he stood up on the pew and got one of the hymnals in front of him, and he was just singing away very lustily. His mother and father were very proud that he was participating in the service. And in the middle of the hymn, he leaned over to his mommy, and he said, Mommy, I don't know what you're singing, but I'm singing Good Night, Irene. <laughs> Having been a practicing clergyman for some 15 years gives me the right to tell a story about two young ladies, alcoholics, who decided they would go out one Saturday night and have themselves a time. When they woke up the next morning, they, were, they found themselves in a strange hotel in a strange town. And besides a cons considerable a pair of hangovers, they had... Uh, two very guilty consciences about some of the things that they had done and some other things that they were sure they had done that they couldn't remember. So they decided that the best thing to do would be to go to church. So they got all dressed up and they started down the street of this town uh, with which they were unfamiliar. And as soon as they came to the church building, they went in and they sat down quietly in one of the back pews with the rest of the congregation. And uh, during the service, they got to feeling still more guilty about the things that they thought they might have done the night before, and so each one of them put a $10 bill in the offering plate. After the service was over, the clergyman uh, got in touch with the, with the head usher, and he said, uh, who are those two nice-looking young ladies who were sitting there in the back seat? And the usher said, I don't know. I never saw them before in my life. Well, the clergyman said, I saw them put in uh, what looked like a couple of $10 bills. And the usher said, yes, that's right. They, they were both very heavy contributors. The clergyman said, well, I wonder who they are if they come from this locality. The usher said, I haven't the faintest idea. All I know is that they sang like uh, Methodists and they prayed like Baptists, but they smelled like Episcopalians. <laughs> well, now, since we have taken care of the lady alcoholics, We'll go on and from there to see what we can do about understanding a little more of this therapy we call AA. I think that in the midst of all of our discussion and thought about the rehabilitation of the alcoholic, that we ought never to lose sight of this one great fact which is so big that we cannot possibly miss it. And that is that Without the help of AA officially and informally, through its membership, backing up the programs that we try to carry out through industry, education, the community, 
medical centers, and other agencies, we would not be able to do the kind of job that we are doing in the rehabilitation of the alcoholic. AA provides a great deal of support officially, but it also gives us informally through its membership a kind of interested participation over a long-range period of time which enables us to do the things that we have done in the last few years. Without AA, it is quite possible that we would not have the rehabilitation centers, the schools on alcoholism, the great body of increasing literature, or any of the other facilities to the degree which we enjoy them today. Now, this is not because AA interferes with what we are doing. They, they adopt an entirely opposite policy of not interfering officially. But it's simply because the AA member is vitally concerned with this problem. We who work at it, perhaps professionally, may work at it eight hours a day. But there are a great many AA members who, are, who find that the rehabilitation of the alcoholic is their primary interest on the job, off the job, day or night, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. And to these people, we ought to give our thanks. We ought not to ever forget the valuable help that they give us. It is true that not everyone who gets sober gets sober through the AA route. It is also true that we would be a great deal more handicapped in this crusade or in this effort, whatever we wish to call it, if we did not have AA people. Now, I think particularly for those of us who are not AA members, that it is important that we try to understand why it is the AA works. Dr. Thibault has given us a great clue in his paper that has been published on numerous occasions in which he has outlined the fact that as a psychiatrist he believes that the what he calls the act of surrender which the alcoholic makes is uh, in a large measure the clue to the rapid transformation of the personality which occurs in many alcoholics who come into AA and almost all who remain in it any length of time. I would like to push that idea a bit further in picking up some of the remarks that I made this morning regarding the core group or the nucleus group. I would like to have us examine another facet of the AA program which I think is extremely important in, the, in, in making AA the effective agency that it is. I realize that in making these suggestions, I'm going out on the end of a somewhat of an academic limb, but since I don't live on any academic limbs, I don't have to worry, and I have nothing to lose if someone saws it off. In trying to understand how this core group in AA functions. We are going to have to go to the insights provided us by psychology and sociology of religion. Now, when you say the word religion, there's always a lot of people immediately who erect a, a, a barrier. And, and thought stops right there. I think we need to be particularly careful at this point because there has been, from a scientific standpoint, a great many things expounded in the name of religion that are sheer, unadulterated claptrap. And I'm not going to put a finger on any part of it. I mean, I'm sure each one of us here in this group is, is sure in his own mind which aspects of religion fall into that category. And if uh, we were to get an expression from each one of us here, that each one of these opinions would probably differ. But let us simply say this, that religion as such has not yielded itself easily to the examination of science. However, I'm going to try to stick to those things which are generally fall in the area of group dynamics and social psychology. 
As I say, we ought not to have a closed mind simply because someone tacks the word religion on something. A good example of how easily minds become closed is seen right here in this building. This building is built on the modern conception of functional architecture. It's a lovely building. It's wonderful to be air-conditioned instead of being over in the old building where we used to sweat it out some hot afternoons. But this building is built on the basis of functional architecture, which is, assumes that the thing which is functional is also beautiful. And yet we have in this building one of the most unfunctional things that I have ever encountered in my life. And probably no one except a man on crutches like myself would notice it. And that is the rectangular banisters or handrails. They are not only unsafe, they are unfunctional, they do not fit the hand, and if a person has to put any weight on it or catch themselves in the case of a fall, you practically amputate a finger. Very unfunctional. And there you have it. Continually, all the time, you and I are finding ourselves in situations where we close part of our minds to thought. And this is true when we come into an area such as we're dealing with this afternoon in regard to AA. Now, AA, frankly, is spiritual in its, in its application. It is not religious in the sense of being affiliated with any religious organization. However, it operates upon the principles that have long been understood by the students of psychology of religion. And the particular thing, as you know, that I want to call our attention to this afternoon is this core group function as it operates for the alcoholic and his family, particularly his wife, or if the alcoholic is a lady, for her husband. And first of all, I would like to define some of the things connected with this core group function, which are quite commonly understood. Some of them are my own ideas, my own development, because this is a pioneering field. The area of group dynamics is a new area. Now, this core group has been the, and through history, has been uh, the instigating spark in new religious movements, and it has also, through history, shown an ability to transform human personality. It is one of the most effective methods for transforming personality that mankind has ever discovered. We have recently made great advances in the area of psychiatry. But as you, if you read the literature on the subject, you will discover that modern psychiatry increasingly is turning to the group therapy technique in which patients in mental hospitals or alcoholic clinics are brought together in informal groups where they discuss their problems with each other and virtually get well as a result of the understanding communication that develops within this group. And this is one of the most hopeful signs for the mass alleviation of emotional disturbance that we have discovered to date. AA has been using it now for some 20 years. Now, I would like to outline, in a general way, some of the basic factors which determine whether a core group or a nucleus is effective. The first factor is the, what we might call communication in depth. Communication in depth. I well remember when this phrase first began to be used around the University of Chicago and a lot of the young students became enamored of this communication and they would sometimes greet you over a cup of coffee in the morning before you'd really gotten your eyes open with an ecstatic uh, uh, sort of way up in the air, fuzzy idealistic stare in their eyes. And they'd say, 
Oh, I had a wonderful time yesterday evening with a group of friends, and we were interacting at the depth level. This, uh, as you can see, could lead to a great deal of complications. But communication in depth, and by that I mean any kind of human communication where people are conveying their real feelings, their real thoughts, even to the point of communicating their failures to each other. In other words, when people get together and they talk about the things that are right down inside. Any core group which is effective in the rehabilitation of individuals is one in which this communication reaches down into deep mental levels, even bordering on the what we might call the subconscious or unconscious level. The second condition which determines the effectiveness of a core group is the is the presence of certain conditions which permit or encourage flexibility. As I intimated this morning, the core group resists structuring. It provides its own structure. Any attempt to structure it will limit that group, limit its the depth of which it reaches into the human mind and the free interchange of ideas. The third factor is the quality of the commitment of the members. Now, there's nothing mystical or either good or bad about a core group. The communists have harnessed the technique for infiltration in their core group um, arrangements. There's nothing either good or bad about a core group. But whether it is a good group and whether it is effective for the growth of personality will depend upon the quality of the commitment of the individuals who participate in that group. By commitment, I mean the willingness to go all out for a certain project or a certain objective. In other words, how much of one's life one is willing to stake for this interest. When the chips are down, will they choose money or will they choose the objectives of the group? Will they choose position or will they choose something else? The question is, how important do they think this objective is? The fourth factor is what I would call the extent to which the group feels a universal fellowship. And here we get into a factor that determines whether the core group is used for good or bad. If the core group considers that the boundary of humanity is limited, say, for instance, by the boundaries of a state or a race or a group, then that core group will fall into the evil and unsocial attitudes which create such things as bigotry, prejudice, and even perhaps such a thing in the political area as dictatorship. If the core group, on the other hand, considers that all mankind is potentially a part of their human fellowship, you are much apt, more apt to find that that group is used for the purposes of benefiting all of mankind. I'm just suggesting things here, and each one of these things is, uh, is, a, is a subject big enough to uh, write a master's thesis on, and I, I'm perfectly aware that we're, we're in trying to cover everything. We're talking about the universe and its contents, but I want to get these things before you. The fifth factor that determines the effectiveness of a core, any core group is the mutual involvement, the extent of mutual involvement with other people. And this is a twofold factor. The first is what we might call a multiple-way response. In other words, the extent to which the individual in the core group reacts with all other members of the core group and in turn with all other people with whom he comes in contact. 
The second factor is whether the individual assumes in his own mind unlimited liability for the welfare of other people. I say unlimited, I'm referring to unlimited within the range of his strength and his ability and his time. I mean, these are attitudes rather than uh, the ability to necessarily carry out a concern for everybody everywhere. Now, these five points are, we'll leave just for the time being and see uh, how the core group applies to AA. First of all, here's this communication in depth. Now, AA groups, for, to a very high degree, have this communication in depth with one another. One of their 12 steps says that we admitted to God and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Whenever a man gets to the point where he is ready to admit to a higher power and to another human being and to himself the exact nature of what he considers to be his wrongs, he's communicating at just about as deep a level as any human being can get. That's scraping bottom. Nobody likes to admit all there is to know about himself, let alone the, the, the bad things. Then the, the AA people carry this further. They say after we have come into this organization, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, no, no member of AA is going to presume to tell you that he completely carries through these principles in every day living. He simply tries to the best of his ability. But this is communication in depth with his fellow man, with fellow alcoholics. So he has, he, if he follows this program, he meets the first condition of a healthy, strong, interacting group. Second, secondly, the AA traditions about which I presume, according to our topic, we're going to hear some more from the next speaker, are designed to encourage flexibility in AA organizations. AA is not permitted to own property. It's not permitted to, to elect permanent officers. It is not permitted to take a stand on any political, religious, or economic issue. It does not affiliate itself with any org other organizations. It is simply and primarily and all the time concerned with one thing, and that is the sobriety of its membership. Consequently, it does not take on the structures of the average organization in which there is membership, property, officers, a code of conduct, a prescribed way of life, or an affiliation with some other entangling organization. Consequently, flexibility is encouraged. Then in regard to the quality of the commitment of AA people, another of the 12 steps said we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Now, this is the surrender that Dr. Tebow is talking about. And he goes on then to explain the second step as part of the surrender. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to God as we understood him. Now, you may not agree with the AA program, you may feel it's too religious. That's entirely beside the point insofar as our consideration here is concerned. The point is that any individual who makes this kind of a decision and this kind of an admission is making a complete commitment of all he has, all he has been, all that he ever hopes to be. Everything in his life comes under the domination of this commitment to the higher power as he conceives it. Or I shouldn't say it comes under it. I mean, as far as human frailty would permit a man to do it. His commitment is a total and a complete kind of thing with no reservations. 
And you will notice uh, if among your AA friends that the ones who do the best job of staying sober and staying sober happily are those who put their sobriety ahead of everything else in life. And then all of the other things come secondary to that. The fellowship of AA does not rest upon an agreement as to how the AA program works or how the 12-step program is to be interpreted. You'll find great varieties of opinion among AA members about the interpretation and the application of these steps. That's the reason why they have that phrase in there, God as we, as we understood him, a power greater than oneself. The speculation about how the AA program works may be interesting to the AA member, but it is not essential to the primary recovery of the alcoholic. All he knows is that he applied these principles and they work for him in his own way. And he, when he gets up to tell his story in the meetings, he says, this is how it worked for me. And someone else may get up right after him and say, well, that isn't the way it worked for me. It worked for me this way. But they still have fellowship within the core group of AA because they have made a common commitment to a common goal, and in their own way, these principles work for them. This commitment in AA fellowship is based first upon a deep desire to attain sobriety above all else, and second, a sincere attempt to turn the management of one's life over to the higher power. From a psychological standpoint, the thing that occurs in this process is that the I-ness of life or the egocentricity of life finds a substitute in the we-ness or the togetherness of life. The life, instead of becoming I-centered and ego-centered, becomes, to a greater extent, we-centered. In other words, for the first time, the alcoholic finds a basis upon which he can join the human race and he can belong. It is we, not I, that dominates his life. Then there is this factor of the universal fellowship. Within AA, there is no class, there is no creed, there is no race, there is no nationality, there are no distinctions, no prejudices, if they are there in the minds of any individual, those barriers will come between him and his sobriety to that extent. There's no one in AA that says to the AA member that you have to get rid of your prejudices, you have to get rid of your little petty peculiarities. No one says that he has to do that. But the universe says, brother, you'd better get rid of those things or you'll get drunk. And the man has no choice. He either has to grow up or he'll die. Nobody tells him that he has to do that. He has his choice. But the alternative is, is death. So the family is admitted to AA. Some areas encourage the formation of what is called the Al-Anon family groups, in which the spouses and other members of the family are brought together for therapeutic sessions for themselves so that they can find this new way of life and they can help their spouses and their loved ones also to maintain it. Other groups maintain what they call open meetings where families are welcome at the regular AA gatherings. And if you will read the history of the AA movement as it's contained in uh, the uh, books that you see on display out here, you'll find that the wives and spouses in the early AA movement were very, very close to the central core group of these things right from the beginning. And it was effective because it brought the whole family into a new kind of relation of togetherness. Now, I might just add this word. Whenever an alcoholic starts out on the road to recovery, after having spent several years 
getting to the point where he was ready to admit he had a problem. The wife or the husband, as the case may be, and the children have themselves suffered certain emotional disturbances which amount in many cases to what we call a neurosis. And at the time the alcoholic comes into AA, there is just as much need for group therapy on the part of the, of the wife or husband or the children as there is for the alcoholic. They are sick also. And quite often the marriage and the whole family life has been pretty well shattered. So that there is within this group therapy of AA a method by which the total family life can be renovated. I do not need to add that in connection with this there is a great deal of mutual involvement. There is a great deal of willingness on the part of the AA member to share in the responsibility for every other drunk who doesn't yet have sobriety. A good AA member can be called out at any hour of the day or night by the need of somebody who sincerely wants AA. If he's too tired to go, he'll call one of his buddies. There is this feeling that one must take this message to other alcoholics. And this is part of the therapy. Some do it in one way and some do it in another. But it is a very effective means by which a man continues to maintain his feeling that he is motivated by a weenus rather than an ionus. He is part of the group. He has a responsibility to society. He cannot neglect this responsibility. He was down and out one day, and he could not help himself. He was in the gutter. He might not have been on skid row, but mentally and emotionally, he was in the gutter. He despised himself. And somebody came along and took the trouble to reach down with a hand and give him a, uh, the help he needed and get, help him get back on his feet. For the rest of his life, he feels a moral obligation to anyone else who is in trouble. He cannot possibly repay the man who helped him. You cannot pay a man back for saving your life. All that you can do is go out and try to save somebody else's life. And this is an obligation that one feels as long as he feels involved with all of society. AA is effective, therefore, because of its quality of commitment to the demands of the members, but also because it generates a certain kind of core group, therapy group. This group is composed of people, as we've said, who are committed to certain methods of living which place sobriety and the thinking of sobriety foremost in their lives. It is composed of individuals who are able to find ego-satisfying goals in joining the human race and becoming a part of the group instead of standing out head and shoulders above any group in which they find themselves. Finally, it's composed of people who can relax in this setting sufficiently to enjoy the informal communication at deep levels with other people. And through this communication, at the depth level, this individual maintains and achieves a kind of personality adjustment in which he is able to transcend his immaturities and he is able gradually to develop increased emotional maturity in every area of his life. Once this individual finds this way of life, it is no guarantee that he will not slip back into it. Once he changes his mental thinking, once he slips back into drinking, this man, for some reason or another, drops back into his old pattern with a sharp, sickening jolt. It seems to all be a part and parcel of a certain kind of personality adjustment. Why it operates that, that way, we do not know. 
But as long as he thinks correctly and he follows this AA program, he maintains his relationship with the core group. This individual who has achieved sobriety through this method is able to maintain his sobriety one day at a time until finally he looks back with amazement and discovers that he has a house and a job, the house is paid for, the car is paid for, he's getting along with his wife and his children actually respect him. What it will mean to you when the day comes that you will leave here. Yes, it's true that <clears throat> some have returned. But the joy that came to me as a result of my being associated with you and those who are now outside during the period of time that I was a sponsor of the Golden Key chapter here, were those men who got the program in the manner that they are still out there. And there are many. I think of Cap and the wonderful job that he is doing. Once his family on welfare a burden to the state while he was within these walls. And the story that he gave me one day, alone, of what he was prepared to do to the judge who sent him here and to the man who had sworn out his arrest and many other things which we might term as damnable that was within his mind. And how this program changed that thinking through the help and the power of God as he began to understand him, to the type of thinking which took him out of this institution, which took him back to his wife and family of several children, and now has that family in a beautiful home. It placed him in the point that he led the nation out of over a thousand salesmen that worked with the company that he eventually joined up with. The success that he has made of his life because within him he found peace of mind and he found it through the spiritual part of the Alcoholics Anonymous program because he found himself with God. I think of Ernie. Not only his own business has married a wonderful girl who has been responsible for the organization of three AA groups in Idaho, and some 45 men, as a result of he who got AA in the Golden Key chapter. They too are now good citizens and living happy lives. He's financially successful. He's a top citizen in his community up there. He's happy because he has peace of mind because of the spirituality that came to him through the Alcoholics Anonymous program and because he was willing, humbly and without reservation, to seek and find and learn the way to turn his will and his life over to the care of God each day as he understood him. I think of Willie. He, too, a success. Yes, an employee in a large banking institution, and no small-time job either. A highly trusted position, and truly worthy of that trust. Yeah, a three-time loser. Or had he lost? It took three times that he might find the way to learn the success that God put all of us here to make. Just less than a score of years ago, many who are now in these institutions were in prison. Millions more who were outside of these institutions were in prison. Because prison is but a state of mind. It is the mental walls we build upon and around ourselves 
that shut out the goodness of our fellow men, that shut out the light of God, and that close in the power that we have and can give to others, which in turn will bring us back to the one thing that all of us want to achieve in life, and that's happiness and joy and goodness. Yes, when I said a score of years ago, I met the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous, because through the strange illness that possessed you and millions more like us, yes, three and a half million in the United States, we were driven in a state of anesthetization to do things which cannot be accepted by society, and we became, through a compulsion and an impulsion, to continue to do those things till many of us wound up in institutions, city jails and state institutions. I don't call them prisons. They are institutions, and it lies within you and me and every individual who happens to come into one of those institutions to recognize it as a place of rehabilitation, a place where if we set our mind to it, and we adopt a daily program of some form or another, and if we are alcoholic, I certainly suggest the AA program, that we shall find our weaknesses and we shall find a way to overcome them, and we shall find a way that we can live in the society of this world and be a man among men and be happy, and most of all, be what God created us to be, a joyful, happy person. One of the greatest thrills that I got in my contacts at this prison was one of the early interviews that I had with your present warden, Warden Graham. I don't know whether he remembers telling me this, but it was the thought that he expressed that day, I think, that accounts for the fact that the Golden Key chapter of this prison is no longer a group of eight or ten or twenty but a group, as we've heard, numbered tonight, 114. This is about what he said. If I, as warden of this institution, in cooperation with the other departments, can work and handle the men of this institution in such a manner that just one who perhaps might have returned, shall not return, then all of our efforts have been well given. I think that's wonderful. I think that's why 114 men are an expression of the attitude and the work that such as Warden Graham, the Adult Probation Parole Board, Mr. Peters, Mr. Wilson, I've worked with those men out there. I'm telling you that they are for you and to help. I know that. I have never asked a favor for one of you men, from any of these men that I have mentioned, or any of these departments who deal with the supervision and the handling of this prison, that if that favor has been within reason, that it hasn't been granted. Gentlemen, the prison is but that of your own mind. This can be a place of rehabilitation. The power of rehabilitation lies within you. And with the help of God, I know you can get it. And from the teaching of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I think we can summarize, and with that, with this thought which I'd like to close with, the thought that I gave at the close of our State AA Assembly, taken from the Bible, the 23rd Psalm, which says, and I change this to plural because I feel it, it applies to us, the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. He maketh us lie down in green pastures. He leadeth us beside the still waters. Yes, he restoreth our soul for his name's sake. Yea, though we have gone down into the valley of the shadow of death, 
we now fear no evil. For we know that he is with us this day. His rod and his staff, yes, they comfort us. He prepareth a table before us in the presence of our enemies that we may feast. He anointeth our heads in oil, with oil. Truly, our cups, they runneth over. Surely, his goodness and mercy shall be with us this day and all the days of our life. And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord as we understand him forever and forever. May God bless all of you men. May you find in this the thing which will remove from you the barrier which will then show you the way to know the peace and the joy that 150,000 members of Alcoholics Anonymous of this great nation of ours are now enjoying. In behalf of all of the AAs of the state of Utah, I tell you that we are waiting and that we are ready with our love and with our service and with our hands to greet you and to help you. For our last speaker, we would like to have Mr. Keith Wilson of the Parole Department, who has done some fine jobs for us. Mr. Keith Wilson, would you please get up and give your address, please? I won't even stand behind the pulpit so that I won't fall victim to its charm and stay here too long. The judge looked down at the defendant who, had, who was before him for about the 30th time for drunkenness and being a public nuisance. The judge said, Joe, I've tried finding you. I've tried giving you jail time. I don't know what on earth I'm going to do with you. Joe looked up at the judge and said, well, judge, I admit I've certainly tried your patience, but whatever you do, don't give up. <laughs> we don't have a man on the staff of the Department of Adult Probation and Parole who doesn't uh, like to work with people. Every man that's in the department has a fundamental faith that people can change once they want to change. I'd like to throw that thought out to you because I know at times you feel bitter about the parole department, but there isn't a man on the staff who isn't uh, sincerely convinced in his own mind that he wants to make parole work a career because he likes to help people who are in trouble. The other point I'd like to make before sitting down is that ever since the inception of AA in Utah, the parole Depart department has heartily endorsed the program. Many of the men who are here have been in our office. We, we sit down together and we plan a parole program for you. The thing that too frequently happens is when a man who has a parolee, who's been an active member here, comes into the parole office, we say, were you at the, the AA meeting last night? No, I didn't make it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, I'll get there, but I feel all right. The next week he comes in, uh, were you at the AA meeting? No, I didn't make it, but I'm getting along fine. And then the, we get a call from the jailer saying, so-and-so's in jail, come over, he wants to talk to you. Wild uh, evening. The uh, AA program offers you fellowship. It offers uh, you a warm, friendly relationship. 
And I heartily endorse the program because I know many of the people in it personally. And I hope that when you come out that you will attend, that you will, of course you see them in the meetings as they come out to uh, participate in your programs, but when you do come out during that difficult three or four months period, get well acquainted with uh, the parole officer, get to know him as a regular fellow, and get well acquainted with your AA men. When you feel lonesome and down and out, that's the time to call the uh, member from the AA who's your sponsor, and go to a movie with him or go to his home, and then your parole will be assured. Thank you very much. Well, fellas, with all these people here behind us, how can we fail? That's all I got to say. Let's all give these people who come up and see us. That's you and me. Let's give them a hand, huh? We'd like to thank you ladies for coming up here. And you gentlemen. It's really a pleasure for us. Gee, you know, it really gives a guy an uplift. That's no kidding. Well... Fellows, this is the end of our seventh annual anniversary celebration. We've come a long ways, this Golden Key chapter, and the fellows in it. Let's see what we can do for the eighth one. Those individuals go out there where them people can get a hold of us and help us. That's willing, sitting here, it's coming up to see us. It's doing all in their power. Let's you and me put out our power. We can do it. We're doing it now. Let's go ahead and do it. If you'll all stand, we'll close the meeting. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, wisdom to know the difference. Thank you. Very fun.